Hello and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens today. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Alaya Dawn Johnson, whose first YA novel, The Summer Prince, has just been published by Arthur A. Levine Books at Scholastic, which is sponsoring this podcast. The book has already received a pair of starred reviews, including one from Publishers Weekly. The Summer Prince is set in a Brazil of the future, one in which wars and environmental disasters have wrecked havoc across the globe. June Costa lives in the Brazilian city of Palmares Tres, a giant pyramid-shaped enclave where the upper classes live in the upper tiers, the poor live in the smelly lower tiers, and heavily regulated technology is woven into every aspect of the residents' lives. June considers herself the best artist in town, favoring high-profile works of public art. But when she and her best friend, Jill, get involved with the newly crowned summer king, Enki, she reevaluates her relationship to the beloved city, especially since Enki, like all summer kings, is destined to be sacrificed for the sake of the city. Alaya, thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. Uh, You've written some young adult short stories before, I think, and some graphic novels for even younger readers. But I'm curious, did, did you start out writing this book for teens, or is that something that developed as it came together? This was probably one of my my very first novel idea that I just knew from the beginning was going to be young adult. I I had I'd been reading, you know, I've always been reading a huge fan of young adult literature and I I'd been toying with a bunch of things, but when I got this idea, I just knew that this was the thing that I was going to write that would be my contribution to the genre that I already loved. You dedicate the book to your sisters, uh, calling them the ultimate travel partners. Did the uh, the three of you spend time together in Brazil? We did. Um, actually, I call them my Johnson sisters, but uh, one Lauren is my sister and Alexis is my cousin, but we have the same last name. And we kind of grew up like sisters. Alexis actually is now living with my parents, so it's a very close family relationship. And um, I think that, you know, we my sister studied abroad in Brazil uh, her junior year of college, and her senior year she went back because she was doing uh, her thesis project on Japanese Brazilians in Sao Paulo. So, which, like, Sapelo, I don't know if you know this, has probably, like, the largest number of Japanese people outside of Japan. And my sister took Japanese earlier in college and in high school and then, you know, learned Portuguese when she was in Brazil and so had a kind of unique ability to talk to people in that neighborhood, uh, Liberdade, in Sao Paulo. And so my cousin and I decided that this was a brilliant plan and we were going to just tag along on her research trip though neither of us spoke a word of portuguese i speak some japanese and um we just we had a really fabulous time and i love love traveling with them and just the experience of that was probably like the very beginning i mean it, it i traveled there with them about five years i think Five years ago now, three years before I even thought of writing the book, but I, I, I'm sure that that experience was really like the start of me thinking about Brazil and thinking about it in a kind of creative way. And since I write science fiction and fantasy, it kind of ended up being a science fictional thing. Looking back on it now, you can see that trip as sort of being... Was it sort of valuable in sort of creating the the setting of Palmar Yeah, Street? it was. I mean, one of the most amazing things was when um, my cousin and sister and I were in Rio, and there was a street market 
Uh, and, you know, I mean, I just love eating street food. This is my, this is one of my big things when I travel. I mean, forget gastrointestinal troubles. I'll take them. I just want to eat the amazing food that people can make on the street, like in any city. It's just one of the best ways of experiencing things. And in Rio, I remember seeing these, these women who were selling, you know, I couldn't, at first I couldn't tell what they were selling. We were too far away, but I looked at their clothing and I thought to myself, well, Lauren, is, are there, you know, African immigrants here? Because they looked so much to me. They reminded me so much of women I had seen in West Africa when I traveled there with my father when I was around 17 um, and women in Nigeria and Ghana and I you know the, just the style of dress uh, the, the hair cloth like that I was just so I was so astonished and Lauren said oh no they're not they're not they're from Brazil they're from Bahia and so that was kind of the first time I had really learned about the way like the African diaspora was very worked really differently in Brazil and in an interesting similarities to you know how the slave trade worked in America also but I, I could tell that there were a lot in some ways closer ties with the culture that the slaves had been forcibly removed from in Africa uh, had persisted in Brazil in a way that they really hadn't been able to persist in America and so you know so we went up to them and they were uh, selling acaraje patties which were basically uh, deep fried uh, patties made of black-eyed pea mash and then filled with uh, different seafood and different kinds of fillings and fried in palm oil, which is, again, like the exact sort of thing that I remember eating on the side of the road in Nigeria. And so I was just so overwhelmed with the the kind of amazing cross-cultural affinities there and like, the differences. Just everything was really cool. And so that was that particular moment was definitely a time when I thought, like, this is just... I, I mean, Brazil is an incredibly cosmopolitan and multicultural society in a way that I think that um, Americans don't quite realize. It's, 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 in some ways, it feels to me like, a, like an almost like weird mirror image, like an alternate universe America. Not, not in a lot of ways, but in the sense of the way like immigration worked there. There's a lot of the same cultures that, you know, immigrant cultures that make up America's profile, but in different proportions and it's sort of like different emphasis in Brazil. And I thought that was really interesting. Hmm. And uh, in the book, uh, Palmares Trace is such a stratified city with the lower classes literally living below the upper ones. And I wondered, you know, did the idea for that sort of structural separation come at all from the, the existing favelas in Brazil, like those uh, in Rio? Yeah, I mean, it's, it was definitely an echo I was I was trying to evoke. It's not it's not in any way a direct correlation, but you know, Brazil is is somewhat notorious for those favelas. And one of the most interesting things, you know, just from visiting Rio was that Rio is a gorgeous city. I mean, just physically, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. It's, it's got this like amazing, like blue green bay and these rocks coming out of the water. I mean, it's just, it's so gorgeous to look at. And the favelas are on the hillside. So they actually have the best real estate in the city. And it's, it's really interesting to see how a city could have grown up with, you know, this incredible poverty married to this incredible beauty. And I think that juxtaposition was definitely something I was I wanted to echo with the Vergi in Palmares Trace. But I also want to make it clear that as as much as the Vergi is, you know, at the bottom of society, it's not life there is not nearly as bad as life can be in the favelas in Rio or Sao Paulo. Hmm. I was also curious about the, the sort of the role of technology in the book. Um, you know, this is a world in which uh, the citizens of Japan, for instance, have basically abandoned their bodies altogether to exist in pure data form. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what sort of sources did you pull from, you know, if any, to sort of construct this, uh, the various aspects of this uh, future Earth? 
you know, there's a lot of, uh, of kind of futurist thought. My dad, when I was in high school, was really into, um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting his name now, but he, he he's like famous for like the age of future machines. He, and he takes all of these crazy pills. If I could remember his name, I will. But he, he um, he's his best-selling writer. And he basically has this idea of like, you know, you just have to hold on until we can get to the post-humanist future. And there's also Cory Doctorow and, and certain other science fiction writers who are always writing about like this kind of, this potential ability to interface our wetware with hardware. And, you know, I mean, I was, none of that stuff is terribly original, but I wanted to, push it into a like a slightly different kind of future and i wanted to make it i wanted to make humans relationship with that kind of technology ambiguous you know how much like how much good it can do you know i'm I'm not myself a luddite but i i kind of have an ability to sympathize with that point of view and i wanted that to be very tense in that society it seemed to me that if if you were going to be on the cusp of that kind of a change it would not be something that would just come easily and you know it's also i feel very easy to see something of ourselves and the way the citizens are are so sort of hyper connected digitally um were you i mean you said you said you're not a luddite but was you know sort of twitter facebook culture that sort of thing something you wanted to sort of build on at all yeah i mean definitely the the way like the city is is so connected to the summer prints and they have all of these camera bots kind of flying around all the time and all of that kind of social ferment was was a big part of it you know i mean oh i remember the name of the guy by the way it's ray kurzweil (laughs) um but uh the you know so i i wanted social media and the way that has has brought us to always being in a certain moment like a cultural zeitgeist has gotten like extremely sort of brief and intense that is something that i definitely was playing with but also I, I was creating a world where the individual kind of city-states are far more isolated culturally than I think things are now. It, it's sort of in the, in the aftermath of that apocalypse, it became much more like our city and our culture of our city and less about eh, so-called world culture. I mean, to some extent, that's true now anyway. You know, it's not like American culture is, is all that open to other influences. But I think it's a little more so now than it is in this in the book. Okay. And, uh, you know, the bond between uh, June, Jill, and uh, uh, Enki is, in some ways, I think, really the, the heart and soul of the book. And there's this existing close friendship and artistic collaboration between uh, June and Jill. And then they both fall for Enki. Uh, right. he, he chooses Jill, but then there's this vibrant artistic connection between Enki and June. And then meanwhile, amid all of that, there's this fluid sexuality among all, all of them that's somewhat rare i feel to see in ya can you mm-hmm. can you talk about that sort of the d- dynamic you wanted to create yeah i mean i've honestly i've always been kind of fascinated by love triangles especially because they become such a prominent feature of the modern young adult landscape and i when i read things like that and especially if i read things that i've not like they don't often work for me. I end up analyzing them a lot. And so part of the thing that always bugged me about love triangles was that there, there's like such an incredibly overpowering assumption of heteronormativity. Mm-hmm. You know, you just, you just, there was never the slightest indication that anyone could ever like someone who was, but other than the opposite gender. And I, because I had created a matriarchal society and I do feel like a matriarchal society would be far less likely to enforce gender norms and enforce sexual norms um than a patriarchal society and i i kind of deliberately wanted to just 
create a future in which th- at least that thing didn't have to be a problem for anyone anymore. <laughs> and um, and so I, I I like the idea of having a love triangle where number one the girl is not at the apex of it, and I like the idea of having of having all sides of it have like powerful relationships so that Jill and June are very, very close. And that love is, you know, it changes and their relationship goes through some changes, but it's never a case of extreme jealousy or, or, you know, June does not have to pick between team Jill and team Angie. Like none of that has to happen in the story, but I wanted to, but I do like in a kind of abstract way, the idea of three people having an incredible shifting bond with each other, which I, to me is sort of like the fundamental interest of a love triangle. And that was, so I spent a lot of time thinking about that and how I wanted that to work. And, you know, June's, deep kind of artistic and physical attraction to Anki and Anki's just kind of super fluidity and you know honestly his promiscuity was a, a huge part of it and a thing that both June and Jill have to deal with over the course of the story mm-hmm. and uh, art and artistic collaboration you know being such a big part of who June is uh, do you have any background in you know performance art public art in those sort of worlds or no <laughs> I, 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 this is this is the case of I write because I cannot do. I, I, I've always been fascinated by artists. I admire them immensely. I, I mean, I, I think what I do is a kind of art, but I also I love like the kind of broader visual art world, and I, I just wanted to write someone who was as passionate and as ambitious about that as I can be about writing. <laughs> you know, basically. So I, I felt like. In that particular way, June is a bit of my avatar, not in many other ways, but but I wanted it to be okay to have a very ambitious main character who kind of knows what she wants. And that changes over the course of the book, but I think starting out with that instead of what you often start out with, which is a character who's sort of unclear about things, and not like that there's anything wrong with that, but I just felt like for all of the, the people out there who who really, really want something, it would be cool to have a character for them. And... Uh, I think that creating like creating June's art was one of the most fun aspects of writing the Summer Prince to me. I loved being able to construct in my head what these art installations would look like and I loved being able to incorporate the music that I was listening to while I was reading the book and that kind of stuff. So I had a huge amount of fun and I think frankly though I don't have the personal patience of the kind that you need to be a good visual artist. And I, it's, it just seems to be a matter of temperament because Lord knows writing novels requires all sorts of patience also, but there's a certain kind of stillness. I think you need to create like one image for a long time that I don't have. Uh, You mentioned uh, just now a soundtrack. Uh, What were you listening to? Oh, I was uh, listening to all sorts of music. I love Joao Gilberto and Gilles Gilberto. And there's um, Maria Bethania, uh, Marisa Monti, Tribalistas, uh, Chico Barque. There's, I, I have like this monstrous collection of Brazilian music, and that was just on a long repeat over the course <laughs> of me writing this book. Um, going back to, uh, we we're talking a little bit earlier about sort of some of the juxtapositions in the book, and there is this sort of uncomfortable contrast in some ways between this glittering city of the future and then also these sort of human sacrifices that help chart its future. This sort of primal thing meets this futuristic thing is that something you were uh, trying to play with yeah i like the idea of of a society that has done something that has put something so radical at the heart of its system and and the idea that in the aftermath of something as as 
kind of catastrophic and and painful as a global apocalypse in which like you know 80 percent of all men are killed off in a plague and there's nuclear war and you know all this crazy stuff that's happened in the four centuries before this book starts has kind of created a world in which something like that might make sense and then in the novel you know that world is a long time ago and there's there's different realities now and i think that the course of that novel is them realizing that it you know, as proud as they are of that past, it might not be a thing to go on with in the future, even though I did want to make it really clear that it wasn't, you know, this has dystopian elements, but it isn't as if these boys are being plucked off the streets and forced to serve their city and then just murdered. You know, they all know, and it's it's all very, as humane as this sort of thing could possibly be. It's about as humane as it can be. There, There's not, it's... It, the power to me came in the idea of it being a willing sacrifice of, mm-hmm. of young boys deciding that it would be worth it to die young if they could be the most awesome person in the world for a year. <laughs> uh, can you talk a bit about your path to becoming a writer? I think uh, you'd written online that it was something you'd been thinking about sort of ever since you were a child. Yeah, I've been pretty obsessed with words and writing. I, I remember that when I was in I must have been in fourth grade, and I decided I was going to write a novel. You know, I, this is probably like the third or fourth novel that I attempted to start writing. And I, I had a little notebook, and I remember I, you know, I wrote whatever three thousand words the start of this novel that I had, and I, and on the cover of it, I wrote fake quotes. From <laughs> I use, you know, like brilliant to the New York Times. You know, I just <laughs> that's great. I was, I was just, it was so absurd, like to even think about now. I just like cringe and embarrassment. But I, I was really convinced that I was going to be this prodigy wonderkin. Like, I mean, at this time, I was eleven. You know, so I was, I was like, you know, maybe I'll give it a couple years. Thirteen, I'm sure to be published by thirteen. You know, so thirteen years around, I was definitely not. Well, I'm impressed <laughs> that you even knew who to get your fake blurbs from. I don't, I, right? I don't think I would have known. <laughs> I mean, it was you know, time. Not I don't even know. I, I I just kept reading. I was obsessed with with science fiction and fantasy. I was obsessed with anything I could get my hands on. I was barred from my sixth grade reading class because I was I was barred from the library because I ended up accidentally cutting my sixth grade reading class by reading in the library. Mm. I just lost track of time <laughs> and they barred me from the library, which I have to tell you was, was really traumatic. Is it right that you got your first uh, rejection letter at age 15? Yes. Yes, I was <laughs> I, I i you know it was so funny because i actually sent that story to i sent it to new york stories i was i was convinced again that i was going to be published everybody was going to love me you know 16 years old a little older than my original dream but it was still okay and and i put a copyright notice on the bottom of every single page which is just i could not even and i didn't send a self-addressed stamped envelope i mean just every single thing about the submission was was designed to make me look like <laughs> the, the offensive amateur that i was and i remember the most amazing thing about that letter is that i got it at all someone bothered to make a rejection letter, you know, write my name on it, and then put it in an envelope that they paid for with <sighs> stamp and mail that back to me. <laughs> and I, I still have that somewhere in my parents' house. I put it on a wall, you know. I got to remember this. At first it was because, like, you're going to regret rejecting me, and eventually it was because I realized that that had been a real act of kindness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, having constructed, you know, su- such a careful world that the, this book takes place in, do you, do you see yourself returning to it? It certainly seems that there could be other stories to tell from this particular earth. Yeah, 
that, you know, I, I've thought about it. There's definitely, I feel, people who could say, oh, but don't you want to know what happened? Yeah, okay, not spoiling things, but you know, what happens after the end of the book? Mm-hmm. I, um, I wouldn't tell June's story again. I think that I've really told the part of June's life that I think I was compelled to tell, I've told. And I think that it would really be diminishing returns to do that again. I feel that that, that feeling that you would hopefully have feeling this book, like you want to know what happens next, you know, write fanfic. But I'm not personally, I think that a lot of times when when writers I love return to worlds I have loved before, I'll still enjoy the book, but I'll kind of wish that they hadn't. That, That feeling of wanting more is in fact sort of more pleasurable than actually having more sometimes. Um, but there is there's other aspects of that society that I think I could return to, especially I've had this idea kind of kicking around my head for a while and who knows when or if it'll turn into a real novel idea. But Tokyo 10 has always struck me as a, an interesting kind of parallel world to Palmatis Trace. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the idea of this you know, this, this big technological city that's kind of empty and it's this ghost town because almost all of its citizens have uploaded themselves into the, the monstrous data cloud. And so the few humans left in it are kind of running around this wild giant, like city that's going to seed basically. And so I, I kind of had this thought that there might be a group of teens that are kind of kept as a genetic, genetic repository and so aren't allowed to upload themselves, but they sort of are running around the city feral. Hmm. Excellent. And are there any other uh, sort of upcoming projects you can talk about? Yeah. The uh, other kind of big YA thing that I've been working on and just finished a draft of is it's it's interesting how how kind of much of a 180 it is from the summer prints in some ways because I I sort of turned back I grew up in Washington DC uh, suburbs and I went to a private school in DC and I ended up deciding to really just bite the bullet and write a book that kind of deals with some of those early experiences of mine. So it's a DC private school novel. It's very much about like the stratified worlds of, of political white DC and what I call black DC. And, um, and it, it's, it, except that because it's a novel I'm writing, it's about that in the midst of a global flu pandemic that might or might not be due to terrorists. Cool. And, and uh, is there any sense of when that might be, uh, you know, making its that, way that out? That ought or? to be uh, spring 2014. Okay. And um, I'm curious, do you have any other uh, travel plans in the works, either, you know, with your Johnson sisters or on your own? Yeah, I, my gosh, I love traveling. I, one of the, one of the ones I definitely just need to find some method of doing is going back to Mexico and particularly Mexico City, because I've been researching this novel that's just sprawling and giant and God knows when I'm going to finish it, but it takes place in Mexico. And so I've been traveling there twice now for a lot of research and I just love it so much. So I'm definitely going back there and my friends are really putting the screws on me to go with them to on a trip to Korea and Japan, which I, as I haven't been back to Japan in a decade at this point, I would really love to do that. And the, you know, the only trouble is figuring out the timing and the, the finances. But I, if I can, that would definitely be an amazing trip. Excellent. Maybe a little uh, fodder for Tokyo 10. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, well, thank you again, Alaya, for taking time to speak with me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, once again, I'm John Sellers at Publishers Weekly, and I've been speaking with Alaya Don Johnson, author of The Summer Prince. Thank you for listening to PW KidsCast.